Welcome to Red Hills Church Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in with us. This is your new youth pastor, James Bush, and I got a few announcements for you guys. Don't forget, we have kids camp that starts tomorrow. It's not too late to sign up, so sign up right here. We'd love to see your kids there as they take the next step in growing in their relationship with God. We have an awesome opportunity this year to give back to our schools. We've created an Amazon wish list that's going to be on our website that you can go purchase something to help our schools out. Hey, we'd love to connect with you. If you're new, you got a prayer request, whatever it is, we love connecting. If you feel like to give this morning, join us by worshiping and generosity. You can give by going online at our website. We hope you enjoy our new series as we dive into the book of James. for that lovely transition. James, when he talks with his hands, he kind of looks like he's in a boy band a little bit. He's kind of got one of these things going on. It's good. Well, uh, my name's Lane. I'm the new lead pastor here. If we haven't met yet, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, my wife is currently at home trying not to have a baby while I'm here. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to get a baby this week, you guys. We're pretty excited. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're really excited about that. But I'm really glad I can be here because we are starting a new series today in the book of James. This is the series called James, Wisdom Lived Out. Now, we live in an age of information, right? There is more information available to more people than ever in human history. But with more information also comes the potential for more misinformation, right? The more knowledge we accumulate, it doesn't always do what we hope it will do, which is provide clarity, right? Oftentimes, more information can actually do the opposite of providing clarity or peace, and actually gives us more uncertainty and anxiety and chaos, right? Here's an example. WebMD, yeah? (laughs) You start feeling sick, you go to WebMD to gather more information concerning your symptoms, and what started out as a tummy ache is now within five minutes become a terminal illness that your death is imminent, right? Sometimes, There is a cacophony of voices that contribute to an already anxious culture, right? There are experts, quote-unquote, everywhere, contradicting each other, people with extreme ideologies that are throwing rocks at one another. And part of what makes this frustrating is that what we encounter on the news, what we encounter in media and social media, it's actually designed to make us feel outrage or to make us feel fear and to push us further into extreme ideologies because— People with extreme ideologies are easier to market to, right? And at the end of the day, media wants to market to you more than it wants to actually serve you, right? So, (laughs) yeah, we're agreeing with that one. Okay. So what is a person to do when more knowledge and more information is not always helpful? Well, every good Jedi knows that there is a difference. Yeah, you're going to get Star Wars references. You're going to get Star Trek references. There's a nerd with you. There's a nerd in your presence, okay? (laughs) But every good Jedi knows that there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? Jesus, who is in the business of serving us out of the overflow of his love and his kindness, he gives us the gift of wisdom. And wisdom has a lot to do with the person from whom it comes, right? When we want information and potential anxiety, we go to WebMD. 
When we want wisdom, we go to a good doctor who knows what to do with the information and how to use it to heal, right? It might be helpful for us as we learn to navigate this world and the chaos in it if we are rooted in a relationship to the healer. In this case, the person who created the world in which there is so much chaos, right? And that's not to say we should fear knowledge either, right? I would prefer to be well-informed over being ignorant, but knowledge is only as good as the wisdom which navigates it, right? So knowledge navigated by wisdom that is given to us by Jesus, this leads us to something more valuable than just information. It leads to truth. But knowledge without wisdom, it can be a dangerous thing. So I'm going to give you like a cheesy analogy, but I think it'll help us remember what's going on. Wisdom is the ship by which we navigate the ocean of knowledge, and Jesus is the navigator, right? Without wisdom, life can feel a lot like this image here. We are kind of in an ocean of all kinds of dangerous ways of thinking. There's ideological extremism, there's confirmation bias and misinformation, there's echo chambers everywhere you look. And what this does to me is actually breed in me confusion, anxiety, and contradiction, right? This is, an o- this is an overly simplistic illustration of what I'm talking about, so don't take the metaphor farther than it's supposed to go. But we aimlessly swim through this sea of information all being produced by entities with agendas, right? And without wisdom, we are susceptible to, to the dangers of reactive and fear-based thinking, which is what all this stuff is, right? But life with Jesus, life with wisdom, is supposed to look like this next picture. God giving us the vessel of wisdom as he helps us navigate the chaos of the deep in the same way that the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos of the waters in Genesis, so the Spirit carries us over the chaos of our world right now, right? So as we, this is why we come to the book of James, because James is an awesome place to find the wisdom of Jesus. And we are in a cultural moment where we need some wisdom. We don't need more information, <laughs> We don't need more people telling us what to think. Frankly, I'm a little bored with the unimaginative talking points of our media. We need to be transformed in the way that we think. We need to be transformed in our perspectives, in our perceptions of the world around us, right? Paul urges us in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And what I love about life with Jesus is that the Holy Spirit actually can use the scriptures to transform us. It's not just wishful thinking. We can actually be changed when we devote ourselves to Jesus. So we're going to start right at the beginning of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to turn there in your Bible or on your app, I'll give you a little bit of context for the book while you're getting there. The author, the author of James. Who wrote the book of James? There's been a little bit of debate around this, but most people basically agree that this is James, the brother of Jesus, one of the brothers of Jesus. He was sometimes called James the Just because he had a reputation for for being a very virtuous person. What's interesting about James is that he wasn't actually a believer. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection. So he didn't come to believe that his brother was the Messiah until after he rose again from the grave. Isn't that interesting? He He was the leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he was considered one of the great sages of the faith. To go back to Star Wars, if Christianity is the force, then James is like Master Yoda. People are looking to him for wisdom. And James was eventually martyred for his faith. 
So the letter of James, it's thought to be the first Christian writing of the first century, the first book written in what we have as the New Testament now. And it's a blend of different writing styles. It is a letter, but uh, perhaps a, a more close way to think about this would be a, a open letter versus a personal letter. He's writing to, as he says, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. But a lot of scholars agree that this is likely a metaphor for the kingdom at large, people who claim Jesus as the Messiah. So it's a letter, but it's an open letter addressed to all people who put their trust in Jesus. And it also reads like wisdom literature, a lot like the Proverbs in the Old Testament. There's lots of memorable one-liners that are easy to memorize and to recall. It's also drenched in the themes of Jesus' teaching, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, which the Sermon on the Mount summed up in one sentence is this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was. So it's a writing to, so he's a, he's a wise sage in the church of Jerusalem. He's the brother of Jesus. He's writing to all Jesus' followers, and he's blending the styles of a letter, the wisdom literature, and the teachings of Jesus. And he's writing this letter to a first century church in order that they might be people of wisdom who live out their faith in a coming era of persecution and hardship, right? Now, we in the Western church, we don't face the same kind of persecution or, or nearly to the same degree that the early church did. But more than ever, we do live in a culture that is volatile, that is quick to become angry, that is, is experiencing outrage and crises of identity, etc., right? So we, the church, who are navigating this swirling chaos around us, I think we need to be anchored in wisdom, drenched in the wisdom of Jesus. So we're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to kind of unpack things as we go. Does that sound good? Okay, James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Stop right there. So James describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word here is, for servant is doulos. This would become a tradition in a lot of the writings of the church. People would describe themselves as a servant, a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is most accurately translated as slave. Now, that word comes with all sorts of modern cultural connotations, but it is the truest form of the word. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, right? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, right? Jesus challenges his disciples in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up them, their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it, right? So the idea is we give up who we think we are and who we ought to be, and we submit those things to Jesus so that he can be the one to shape us into who we were created and meant to be, right? Giving our lives over to Jesus is not like how we would think about giving our lives to a slave owner who is corrupt, mad with power, or greedy. Rather, we see a Savior who, in the words of Paul in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Guess what word that is there? Doulos. So we make ourselves to a, a slave to the one who makes himself a slave. Do you remember the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? It's one of my favorites. Jesus did what was the epitome of what Paul described here, taking on the very nature of a doulos. He takes off his robe, ties it around his waist, and he starts washing the feet of his disciples. 
something only servants would do. John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So we make ourselves a slave to someone who makes himself a slave and calls us his friends. We don't serve a Lord who sits back while we do all the hard work and he reaps the rewards, right? No, we serve a Lord who humbles himself and labors alongside us while we labor for the kingdom. He enters into our suffering, into our pain, into our temptations. And in that place, he's able to give us rest and peace and joy and living water springing up and overflowing, right? Verse 2, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Greg Watson says, the phrase, whenever you experience various trials, assumes that trials are a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, trials are a given for a faithful disciple. The Jewish wisdom tradition held that the experience of trials was proof of a person's faithfulness. So joy, in this context, is able to exist in suffering because of what endurance in suffering is a sign of. Does that make sense? It's a sign of trust. It's a sign of trust in the hope that Jesus gives us. Because we're able to cling to that hope, we have joy even amidst suffering. And the phrase, consider it joy, it implies that we know suffering is not joy, right? For anyone in this room who's experienced loss, for example, sometimes we hear people say things like, if I could do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same way. And a lot of us know we don't always feel that. Sometimes we wish we could go back and save people that we've lost and do things differently. I don't believe that what James is calling us to is to smile through the pain. I don't think that's what he means. To put on a brave face, to keep calm and carry on. I'm very grateful that we have scriptures that are robust in the teaching of how to grieve and express sorrow. <laughs> Isaiah, the prophet, he prophesied that Jesus would be the suffering man, acquainted with pain, right? The Psalms are rich with lament and tears. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament dedicated to lamentations. It's called Lamentations. <laughs> Paul writes, we do see things in the scriptures, right, where Paul writes like, hey, be anxious about nothing, but in everything present your requests to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yes, he says that. Paul also writes elsewhere, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So, it would seem that these two states of the soul must not be diametrically opposed. You see what I'm saying? Jesus himself embraces lament. And suffering. We see this. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he sees the body of his, of his friend, Lazarus, his dead body, he weeps. Jesus weeps knowing full well that in a few moments he will raise his buddy from the dead. I don't think the scriptures are suggesting that we become those who do not experience difficult emotions, right? Or, or people that don't know how to grieve. 
But I do think that the scriptures teach us that there is a hope beyond our grief. So perhaps the invitation is just for us not to make our home in grief. We camp out there, but we don't live there, right? In Psalm 126, one of my favorite psalms, it says, those who sow with tears will reap with joy. So it would seem that our faith and hope don't diminish our pain and our suffering, but it does give it meaning. I've suffered some in my life, maybe more than some of you, definitely less than most of you, but what I've come to understand is that I don't always get to know why hard things happen. I don't always get to know. What I have found is this, that through difficult things, God wastes nothing. He wastes none of it. Every person I've lost, everything that I've grieved, every sin that I've committed, he, wastes, he, he doesn't waste it. He uses it to teach me something, and he gives us endurance. Psalm 126, those who reap with tears, or sow with tears, will reap with songs of joy. Psalm 30, weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Grief, mourning, lament, these are necessary spiritual functions for the Jesus follower. In the same way that, excuse the crude analogy here, in the same way that a bowel movement is necessary for bodily health. Yeah, we're going here, so, so get, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. You ever read that book, Everybody Poops, right? What we need is a balance of worship in our souls, right? Grief and gratitude, lament and praise, weeping and rejoicing. What we don't want is people who stuff all of their God-given emotions, right? Some of us need to be more present to our feelings. Some of us need, are, are prone to things like spiritual and emotional constipation, and what you need is the probiotic of lament. <laughs> it's what you need. And some of us listen way too much to our feelings and obey them and trust them. You listen to My Chemical Romance on repeat and just have emo songs all the time. It's an emo band. Um, and some of you have emotional dysentery, right? Like it's the opposite problem that you have. Our hope is to be people who are spiritually regular, <laughs> right? <laughs> who have... Some of you are like, I'm out, I'm out. That's the analogy, that's what, that's what did me in. Um, but do you get what I'm saying? That there is an ebb and flow of emotions that is healthy to human life, and the Bible actually gives us an expression of worship for each of those feelings in a way that is healthy for us to experience, right? We don't live in grief, we camp out there. So when you set up your tent in grief, don't put wall-to-wall -wall carpet. Just know that you're camping out there, right? There is hope that comes in the morning. So when James invites the church to consider it pure joy, he is thinking about the endurance that, in, that trials train in us, right? We can't control how and when difficult things happen to us, but we do have some say in how we respond to those things, right? When I put my faith in Jesus, my trust in Jesus, I find that he's able to develop my endurance. And the more Jesus can build my endurance, my perseverance, my resilience, when he can build that in me, he brings me to maturity. And in maturity, the most mature people I know know how to find joy in everything, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, if you think of this world as a place simply intended for our happiness, you find, it, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place for training and correction, and it's not so bad, 
right? Jesus suffered injustice, torture, persecution, betrayal, slant, any, any injustice you can imagine. Jesus experienced it in excess. But he was not moved by these things because he knew who he was, he knew who his father was, and he knew what he was sent here to do, right? He was affected. He was affected. Things caused him pain. Things caused him sorrow, but amidst all of that, he never forgot who he was. He never felt insecurity. He never had to fight fire with fire. He was anchored in the truth. He had the kind of security that could in one breath utter on the cross, my God, my God, why have you let me go through this? And in the next breath say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of security that Jesus had. This is the kind of faith that had nothing to prove, right? When I have my faith and trust in Jesus, you can hurt me, you can slander me, you can betray me, you can make me cry, you can cause me grief. But because my identity, my belonging, and my purpose are anchored in Jesus, I will not be moved. Those who have learned the path of endurance through trial, those who have been shaped by the character of hardship, I find that these people often know best the importance of gratitude. The Greek word for endurance here means that nothing can move you, nothing can spin you out. We are not blown and tossed by the wind, as we'll read about in this next section. Verse 5. If any of you is lacking wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Okay, here's a tough one. Don't doubt. Ever. Don't doubt. The end. Here's what's hard about this. This kind of doubt is not the kind of doubt that we understand as a Western culture. This is not a psychological cognitive dissonance where I, I'm not sure if I believe something, where, where doubt is the nemesis of belief. The word doubt here is the Greek word dipsychus, double-mindedness or divided in one's loyalties. Do we see how there's a big difference here? between having questions and not sure what I think about something versus having a division in loyalties of who I pledge my allegiance to, right? When we are unstable in all of our ways, it is because our trust is split. Does that make sense? That's why James says, a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. His, division, his, his loyalty is not split. He is devoted heart and soul all in to Jesus and Jesus alone. And in this, we have the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Build your house on the rock, not the sand. Because if your foundation is built on anything but the rock, your house is, is sure to fall. And a lot of us like to build our house half on the rock, but also half on the sand. We trust in Jesus to a degree, but there are things that we cling to other than him. Our loyalties are divided, dipsychus, double-minded, Right? So it would seem that doubt is not often the problem we think it is. Those of us who have been very churched, like me, have a tendency to think about doubt as the boogeyman, as though somehow doubt is the enemy of faith. But if you think about it, faith implies doubt. Doesn't it? Because faith is the act by which I put my trust in Jesus even when I can't make sense of the circumstances. 
I put my faith in Jesus even when I have questions about how this is going to work out. So listen to this. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is the audacity of trust. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is the audacity of trust. People need a space where they can doubt. Did you know that? (laughs) Where we can ask questions, dare I say, to use a bad word here, deconstruct. Uh Uh-oh. Listen, deconstruction in and of itself is not a bad thing. Here's why. Imagine if Jesus had not helped people deconstruct what they knew of religion. Jesus actually invented deconstruction. (laughs) In the Sermon on the Mount, he used it for almost every point he made. You have heard it said, but truly I tell you. When Martin Luther nailed the 99 Theses, he was deconstructing the practices of the Catholic Church, wasn't he? People, especially young people, need a space to ask questions to poke holes, and to call into question traditions of the, and the practices of the church. Because guess what? Sometimes they have a point. When the Christian church in colonial America was complicit in and sometimes responsible for the slavery of black people, it took brave groups and individuals who were willing to question and deconstruct the practices of the church. And if If we're confident in the truth of Jesus, we don't need to be intimidated by questions. We don't. Because the people in my life, at least, who have the strongest faith, the most resilient faith, they're the people that are very comfortable with very difficult questions. At least in my life. Endurance in circumstances, right? People need to be able to question and doubt in a safe and resilient community that I know the church can be. I've seen it. Otherwise, Young people will give up on deconstructing, deconstruction and they'll opt for something worse, dismantlement or disintegration, which happens all the time, which is far more concerning. This is when I'm no longer trying to remodel the house. I'm trying to uproot its foundation. This is when I see no room in the faith community I grew up in, so I reluctantly arrive at the inescapable conclusion that if I'm going to belong somewhere, it won't be here, so I must leave. If we truly desire to be a church, to be a home, we have to endeavor to make it the kind of home that is not intimidated by the idea of a remodel. Because if the foundation is strong, if Christ is the cornerstone, he's still the one building the house. He is. So we can endure. We can find a stronger community in the midst of questions, right? So the doubt that James is challenging us in this, challenging in this letter is actually a doubt that is more common to most of us and more of a problem. It's the doubt of divided loyalties. When I expect God to fix all my problems and show me the way, but I'm unwilling to make myself a doulos to him, of course I won't see the results. Because this kind of faith is the kind of faith that is all in. It's the kind of faith that is not in bed with other ideologies, institutions, governments, and political parties right? If you want to be in, you got to be in all the way. (laughs) Remember, faith is not the absence of doubt, but rather the audacity of trust. Ask all the questions you want, but remember, joy is produced through obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. That's when you find joy. Do we trust God's pathway to peace and joy? Because it won't look like the world's, and it won't look like mine. If we are honest— Our divided loyalties are usually between God's strategy of cultivating joy 
and mine. God's strategy requires that I engage with suffering. My strategy usually requires that I avoid it, right? But when I put my faith and my trust in my own hands, not only will my efforts fail to yield the desired satisfaction, but it will offer me further entrenchment in my perpetual crises. Because when I embrace my constitutional right to pursue happiness, usually what that means for me is I pursue pleasure. And I deceive myself into thinking that pleasure will bring me happiness, but pleasure is fleeting. And more pleasure, too much pleasure, actually usually brings less satisfaction. Isn't it interesting that when we put our faith and hope in Jesus, it is suffering which produces endurance, which gives us joy? It feels counterintuitive, but that's what he invites us to. Verse 9, let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. This is just taken right out of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just straight plagiarism, right? James, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, he gives an example of how joy can come from trials because joy comes with perspective of those trials, right? Because the principles of the kingdom of heaven flip the power structures of the world on their head. And this is where the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount come into, right? Like Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where they can't be touched by those things. There is always a temptation for us to allow our peace of mind to be dictated by our circumstances, i.e. being poor. But a reorientation of our perspective places our peace and joy in the hands of a person, God, rather than our conditions and our circumstances. Does that make sense? And when we become a people who endure trials, who choose the way of Jesus, even when the way of the world would be easier, that's when we endure temptation to do things the world's way, to do things God's way, which is why there's so much talk of faithfulness. I was just talking to my friends here who did the, what's the relay called? The Cascade Lakes Relay, 216 miles. That's endurance, man. That is, I'm concerned for your mental state, but that's endurance, right? That's amazing. The, the, the scriptures are riddled with this. Paul writes in, 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 in 2 Timothy, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. You can read more about that in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. <laughs> Verse 12. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to death. Sorry, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. So there's a Jewish wisdom principle that's present in this passage. Um, there are two impulses that the Hebrews uh, kind of knew about. It was the yetzer chatab, which basically just means my tendency towards good. And then the yetzer hara, which is my tendency towards evil. There's this duality within me. That part of me wants what is good and part of me wants what is bad. And we live in this frustrating reality where Jesus has 
transformed us so that we are no longer who we once were, but we're still awaiting the promise. So we're still not yet fully who we are becoming. We have impulses that lead us to death. And what's frustrating about that is that those impulses that lead us to death are actually impulses that are supposed to lead us to life, but they've been distorted and perverted. A mentor once told me that sin is human beings attempting to meet our needs in a way God never intended. Our desires, what we want, is powerful. And there's this constant struggle to choose the deeper desire, the yetzer hatab, the tendency towards good, the part of, of God's fingerprint that is on my DNA. Sometimes it's hard to choose that. So we reorder our desires, and that requires that we reorder our thoughts and our habits, but reordering our thoughts and our habits sometimes feels just insurmountable, doesn't it? Ever, anyone ever given up on a New Year's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Resolution. Resolution, yeah, for sure. And our culture tells us that we can get to our goals by changing the way we think and practicing habits, which is not wrong. But our culture tells us that it is by human effort that we will one day achieve paradise, right? This is secular evolutionary humanism, that we are one day going to progress to a point where we achieve utopia. But the biblical narrative is not that. The biblical narrative is actually restorative. It talks about how shalom is about becoming who we were always meant to be. So it's not so much about reaching the horizon as it is about returning home, right? If sin is doing things our own way, which the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about it. Our first sin was deciding that we were going to command for ourselves what we thought was good and what we thought was evil. That is the spirit of human rebellion, choosing our way over God's way. We rebel against God's way in favor of our own. And if we look back to that story, and we look at what God was concerned with back in that garden when the original sin was committed and we were hiding in shame, what was his first question? Where are you? His first concern is that human beings tried to do things apart from loving relationship, apart from the trust and the affection that he had established. Everything God desires for us is out of a heart of love and affection for us. And the heart of the story of the Bible is that we be reconnected with God's love, not that we get our morality right. Do you understand the difference there? Not that we learn how to behave well, but that we get reunited with our Father who transforms us, and from the inside out, our practices are then changed. There's a big difference there. In the Western world, we value our thought and our will. We live in the age of information and reason and the grind our thoughts shape our will, and our will drives us towards our goals. But Christians throughout history, including Augustine, have understood that, that, that it is more than what we think and what we will that shapes us. It's actually what we love that shapes our lives. James K.A. Smith, he wrote, Love is like autopilot orienting us without our thinking about it. Desire goes so much deeper than our thoughts, right? And this is the classic religion versus relationship conversation. Without an affection and a desire to be with God, the things that we do for him, like the older brother of the two, uh, parable of the two sons, trying to work for the father's affection, they actually become the thing that gets in the way of my relationship with him. If we try to white-knuckle our way to paradise, it won't work. 
Henry Nouwen said this. He said, you have to say yes fully to your powerlessness in order to let God heal you. We don't like that. (laughs) I like to have control and power in my life to do what I want to do. But the center of this faith is that he just wants us to come home. And transformation takes place when we have union with God, right? I want to show you a picture. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Chronicles of Narnia, a book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And one of these books was titled Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's this character in this book named Eustace. Eustace was a spoiled, arrogant, annoying child who was constantly plaguing the other characters with his whining, right? Well, when he and his cousins are in the magical land of Narnia, they stumble upon this cursed treasure. And Eustace, despite the warnings from the rest of the group uh, not to take anything from the island, he puts on these two golden bracelets, thinking that when he goes home, he'll be able to sell it and become rich. Once he puts on these bracelets, he's transformed into a scaly, terrible dragon. And Eustace tried to claw the scales off, but he could not peel away the dragon that he had become. It wasn't until he encountered Aslan, who is Jesus by another name in Narnia, that Aslan was able to peel away the beast and restore the humanity of Eustace. In the movie version of the story, there's a line where Eustace says, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't do it myself. Then he came towards me. It sort of hurt, but it was a good pain. You know, like when you pull a thorn from your foot. Exactly what Jesus warned about is what happened to Eustace. What started out as a desire for riches and power eventually dragged him away and consumed him until he became a, became a beast that he couldn't control. He was lured by his fallen desires, which gave birth to sin, which then fully grew up and gave birth to death. And only Aslan was able to restore the human that he was created to be. So our sinful habits and tendencies are like the scales of this dragon, the instincts of an animal. And they they form and develop out of an instinct for us to protect ourselves, to survive in a cruel world and to meet our needs in our own wisdom in a way that Jesus never intended. But Jesus' kingdom offers us a way to move from just surviving in this world to flourishing in this life. He desires that human beings would be set apart from survival in the way that they're set apart in Genesis, full of the breath of God's life. So if we devote ourselves to Jesus, we become doulos to him, and we can experience this inner transformation, which will transform the outer life as well. But if we try to work from the outside in, the results are shallow and temporary, right? There's this reality that we need to embrace that we are powerless to fix and heal ourselves. And this is why James identifies himself as a doulos, because the healing can only work if we give ourselves fully to Jesus and trust in him. We have to trust in him. Verse 17, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become the kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this is an invitation to trust. There is nothing that God will give us that won't be good because God is nothing but good. And if we can trust that, we can receive his wisdom, even when things around us don't seem to make sense right? He does not change like shifting shadows, like the ways that other things we devote ourselves do. He is only good. And it is the truth we discover in wisdom 
that we can be transformed by him into the first fruits of what will one day be a reality where suffering and pain are no more. But while we're here, we learn endurance and we represent the first fruits of that joy even though we're still awaiting it, right? And with that, we come to communion, which I actually left my communion on my chair over here. Let me grab it. Jesus went to the cross and rose again in order to inaugurate the reality we just talked about, to initiate the transformation of this world into something better, of our bodies and our souls into something better. But we're still awaiting that change. When we make ourselves a servant, a doulos to Jesus, we see that this is the way he handles it. He gives up his life for the sake of us, that we would be reunited with the Father who desires to heal us. He's the giver of wisdom, who knows how to teach us to navigate knowledge and chaos with love and joy. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the elements together. Jesus, we thank you that your love is the kind of love that was demonstrated self-sacrifice, that your way to wisdom is love and affection. We ask that these lessons would be worked into our hearts and our minds, that it would be your spirit that transforms not just what we do, but who we are. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Kind of like a fire hose a little bit, wasn't it? A lot of content there. You guys are great. <laughs> we have something special now. Um, there was a camp that was going on this last week called Dance for Dancing for Joy. Dance, dan Joy and Dance were in the in the title, um, and it was a kids camp. And Kindle was putting it on, um, and.